If you just are walking into this place for the first time today, we are, as you're sensing, in the beginning of a series of really deep conversations. We're thinking together about the deep, profound shifts that Christ calls us to. Not only to reflect more fully the heart of God, though that would be reason enough, but also to invite us into, to usher us into, that more abundant quality of life that is God's profound intention for everybody. For you, for me, for everyone that we can reach. Uh, everybody that we can touch and bless in the course of our life. I talked last week about the very first of those shifts that Jesus calls for. And he calls for them, as I mentioned last week, through the power of parables, these amazing stories, one we've just heard, that draw us to think differently, to move in a different way through this world. And the shift that I began to unpack last week is the shift from dabbling to discipleship. The shift from sort of a, a moderate, itinerant, partial interest in the things of Jesus to a deep, devoted investment in developing the life of Jesus. That shift, I suggested, is a little bit like the, the movement that a race car driver does at the start of the race out of neutral and into first gear. You're not going anywhere fast until you shift out of a sort of neutral attitude towards the way of Jesus and make a commitment to really going forward with him. And, and I hope that as you think about this, the frame that we provided for it will be helpful to you. You need to first catch a vision of where it is you're hoping to go, the life of Jesus, and develop an intention to pursue that life purposefully, and then take hold of the means that actually God will use, things like small groups, for example, to, to develop in you more of his character. Vision, intention, means. Pursue vim with vigor, says Dallas Willard, and God's life is gonna grow with you. Now, it begins with that first shift from dabbling to discipleship, but if you have made that shift in your life, then you're ready for the second movement, the second gear in a sense that God calls us to. And that particular shift is the one that gets painted in very vivid terms for us in the stories that Jesus tells in the 15th chapter of the gospel according to Luke. Listen to the word of God. Now the tax collectors, these were not popular people, they still aren't. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Now this should be the first clue, this is an interesting story. Because it's not the religious people that are hanging on every word that Jesus says. It's the messed up people. And the ostensibly healthy people are grumbling. So I'm dying to know what happens next. The, the, the religious people say this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus, apparently tuned in to their concern, tells them this parable. 
Suppose he says one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go out after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, doesn't he joyfully put it on his shoulders and then go home? Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, says Jesus, in the same way, there's going to be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, who turns around, who goes back in the direction that is home than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Or, says Jesus, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, doesn't she call her friends and her neighbors together and say, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who comes home? Jesus then goes on and he tells the most renowned story of all, the one we've just heard in vivid terms, the parable of the prodigal son, and I'll return to that one in just a moment. Let me pause with you for a moment and try and break this down a little further. The big danger with the stories of Jesus is that we hear them so often. They become sort of like background noise. Our eyes glaze, we think, ah, I know that one. I don't really have to pay attention. Get on to something new. Well, let me make this new for you. Think together about what is really going on in these stories. All of the stories in this chapter of Luke's gospel have four common plot elements. The opening story Jesus tells is about a man who owns a hundred sheep. The second is about a woman who has 10 silver coins. The final story is about a, a father who has two children. And the common element in each of these cases and through no, that is that through no apparent fault of the owner themselves, one of these possessions, at least one, has gone missing. One of them's gone missing. A sheep wanders off, probably out of stupidity. Sheep do this, I've been a shepherd. A coin rolls away, probably out of, I don't know, blind gravity. And a son splits from his family, clearly out of selfish depravity. Now there's some intentionality about this succession of stories. Because what Jesus is doing in the most brilliant way I can imagine is summarizing in three little vignettes all of the stuff that happens to us in life. Things go awry sometimes out of our stupidity. Sometimes they go awry out of just the gravity, the natural pro processes and losses of life. The, it, just as a coin falls out of our pocket and between the cushions of the sofa, sometimes things fall apart. 
through the natural processes of the life. And then sometimes things happen because of, of plain depravity, poor character, people making bad choices, uh, someone asking for more than they should or making errors of one kind or another. He just is describing, Jesus is, how things go awry in this life. Brainless choices, blind circumstances, poor character. The second common element that ties all of these three stories together is the response of those who are listening to Jesus tell this story. Now, Jesus doesn't give us the soundtrack for this, but you don't have to be brilliant to recognize what is really going on. What is likely the response of people to, 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 the, to the plot line he's giving? You know that people are thinking to themselves, um, it serves that that dumb sheep right if he becomes wolf bait. The basic response is, who cares? Who cares? And in fact, the story is an ironic story because Jesus is presupposing a response to, to each of these losses that nobody would actually have. Most people wouldn't care about the loss of a, of a single sheep when you got 99 other perfectly good sheep and you know they're gonna reproduce in the springtime. Let that one go. To the woman, they would probably say in the story, don't bother with the missing coin. It'll show up again. You'll be turning over the, the sofa cushions. You'll find it eventually. And besides, you have nine other silver coins. You're rich. Let it go. Or to the father, they would shout, please let that kid starve. Let that kid starve. He's proven himself worthless by demanding his inheritance early. If he never ever returns, your life's improved. Our community's improved. When we get rid of people like that, if he ever comes back, we'll stone him. And that is what Jewish law would have permitted under those circumstances. Who cares about these lost ones? It's the third element of the story, the one that we find in each of those narratives that the teaching of Jesus actually turns upon. Because strangely, it seems, the main character, the one who had the, 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 the object or, or the person in their life, each one of these uh, individuals apparently cares a lot in a way that those listening in would struggle to understand. Jesus doesn't give us all of the detail about this, but we get this picture of the shepherd leaving the sheep, we're told, in the open country. And the implication is here is the shepherd is now going to the non-open country. It's the wide open safe place. The shepherd is going to the closed down, narrow, dangerous place. He's going to go to the thickets. He's going down into the ravines. He's going into the place where, where bandits could be lurking. He's heading out to find this one missing lamb. In the second story, you can imagine the, the woman, right? She, she's, she gets up out of her chair. It is dark, apparently, because she lights a lamp. How many of you go looking for things in the dark? We do sometimes. We have iPhones for that. But the reality is that that most people would say, I'll wait till the daylight. She doesn't lose a moment. She lights a lamp, she grabs a broom, she sweeps around, she reaches under things. You can imagine her going belly down, right? Reaching in faces of the dust bunnies and reaching under the bed and under the sofa and under the table, trying to find it until she finds the lost coin. And then in the third story, you, you picture this father is spying his boy coming up over the hill, 
How is it that he sees the kid coming up over the hill? We're told he saw him while he was still a long way off. How is it that that happens? Answer, he was looking for him. He had never stopped. Looking for him, gazing, hoping, praying that this kid is going to come home. That's the, that's the surprising element of the story because then we see him hiking up his, his skirts and running out to meet this kid. He does this thing that, that in Jewish society and culture at that time would have been regarded as an incredible act of indignity to, for the father to hike up the skirt and go out in this particular way. And finally, the fourth element in each story is a huge party ensues. Let's celebrate The shepherd calls his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. The woman in the second story gathers all of her associates together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. The father in the last story tells the servants, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found And in every case, a celebration is held that seems utterly out of proportion to the apparent value of the item. And those listening in would have certainly said, I don't get it. Why are you so excited over the reclamation of a stupid sheep, an ordinary coin, and a lousy son? Do you realize how shocking this story is? How against the flow of the way people often think and work and and respond to other people out there in their life? And, And Jesus tells this story because he is wanting to challenge the ordinary way that we are treating people in this life. Jesus is telling this provocative story in an effort to push us towards a shift, a fundamental shift. And and the way I know that is that he then goes on to, to describe the typical way that people do tend to orient themselves towards the imperfection of other people. Uh, Jesus describes the reaction of the older son to the news that the younger son has come home. All these years I've been slaving for you, says the older son to the father, and yet I've never disobeyed your orders and you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What gives? God's grace doesn't make any sense for those who haven't made the shift we're talking about today. God's grace doesn't make sense to merely religious people. Because religion says, and this is the difference between 
the religion that is common in this world and the relational life that is the kingdom of God, religion says that it's the people who are doing the right things or who appear to be doing the right things who actually matter. It's the ones who stay in the sheepfold, who remain in the purse, who don't stray from home, who are the valuable ones. It's the people who already attend church. It's the pastors. It's the rule keepers. It's the people that don't upset the order, who don't mess things up. These are the people that should be the focus of God. This is the attitude of religion. And it's why the Pharisees were just appalled by Jesus. Here comes this guy who is a parent, he's a rabbi, he's a holy man. And who does he spend his energy on? Sinners, tax collectors, rejects, outcasts, marginal people, mess-ups, undesirables. But this only reminds us that that there's more than one way of being lost. There's more than one kind of lostness in this world. The younger brother definitely is lost. But the fact that the older brother sees himself as slaving, that's the word that gets used, he says, I'm slaving for you, instead of serving the family's purposes, is very telling. It says that he doesn't really actually have a loving relationship with his dad that he resents not even being given a, a young goat to party with his buddies with, suggests that he doesn't understand the generosity of the father's heart or the privilege that he's had every day of his whole life. Being in communion and sitting at the table with, with the father. The fact that he sees the wayward boy as, I quote, this son of yours instead of as what? This brother of mine? tells us that he has lived all of these years in the Father's house and never absorbed what it means to be family. <laughs> to be family, to imperfect people. Tim Keller, a well-known author and pastor, observes that there are always at least two forms of lostness. We can be lost in our selfishness, like the younger brother in the story, or we can be lost in our self-righteousness, like the older son in the story, but both forms of lostness break God's heart equally. They're both profoundly of concern to him. And both of those conditions have this common element. They come about because we are overly focused on securing ourselves. We're overly focused on trying to get it for me, to secure it for me. Now, we may want different things. Some of us may want power. We may want position. We may want affirmation. We may want accolades. We may want validation, we want, may want other people to understand our point of view. These are, I guess, all legitimate needs in one way or another, but sometimes those particular needs become so total that they become the main thing for us, the main way we work through life, consciously or unconsciously, 
to the extent that we actually lose the ability anymore to really feel for or perceive that there are other people out there also hungering for grace, hungering for hope, for recognition, for inclusion, for, for opportunity. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's, it is fine to invest energy in securing yourself, in securing your family. It is fine to be doing that. But if we are gonna be followers of Jesus, then it means we also have to every bit as energetically be seeking the good of others. And if we're not seeking the good of others as a major theme of our life, then we too don't yet get the Father's heart. Because he is so much more about seeking others good than he is about securing self. I, I, I think about this for, in just broad terms. How easy it would have been for Jesus, how justifiable it would have been for Jesus to simply enjoy the security, the ultimate security of heaven forever without ever doing a thing more. He could have happily remained in the eternal armchair being waited upon for all of eternity by these gorgeous, spectacular, powerful angels who considered it a joyful privilege just to serve him. He could have stayed in that particular spot in total security. But this is what gets me. He got out of the chair. He went out of the eternal house. He went all the way down the stairs. He went deep into the ravine. He went out into the darkness and into the briar patches of this world that tore him up and scarred him in all kinds of ways in the process in order to find a single stinking sheep named Dan Meyer. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why he then laid down his own perfect life on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for my mess-ups, to pay the penalty for the huge deficit of love in my heart. I don't know why. Through Jesus Christ and his church, God brought me home. He gave me a family, an amazing kind of family through whose love I have become something I would never have become without it. I don't know why. Unless it's because God has a heart that is just better and more beautiful than any other heart that I meet on this planet. What's your story? What's your story? How has God met you? What has God done? How has his grace touched you? And has his pursuit of you and his desire for your good changed in any way, shifted in any way the center of your life toward a greater concern for others? One of the things that I did this past summer was read some tremendous books. I, I, I think the favorite book of this past summer season for me was Delia Owen's award-winning book, Where the Crawdads Sing. 
It's the story of a young girl named Kaya Clark who, whose traumatized family system uh, results in just a progressive set of losses for her. Uh, her mother leaves. She's been beaten up by an alcoholic f- husband. Uh, her brother and her sister and her siblings leave, eventually abandoning her, abandoning a little girl to live all by herself in the wilds of the North Carolina coastal marshlands. And with little but wild animals and birds as her companions, Kaya develops these remarkable survival skills. She adapts to the circumstances that she has been forced to face in her life. And, and, and she, she develops this amazing knowledge of the rhythms of the natural world. But having suffered so very much, And having lived so very long outside of the bounds of what most people call normal, Kaya is a bit strange. I mean, she is a little disfigured. She is a little distorted. She is a little messed up, a little weird. And the people in the closest town nearby, a place called Barkley Cove, they see the weirdness. And they come to suspect her of being very bad. And they come to reject her and to even despise her. And she gets written off as like one of those sinners or those tax collectors that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law hated that Jesus was interested in. She's a lost sheep. Kaya is a lost coin. She's a lost child. And near the climax of the story, she's put on trial for her life. And the townsfolk uh, gather actually somewhat gleefully around to see her be punished for being such an outsider. Until a venerable old lawyer rises in his closing argument in the trial and pleads the case. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he says, I grew up right here in Barclay Cove. And when I was younger, I too heard the tall tales about the Marsh Girl. Many still call her that, I know, he says. Some people whispered that she was part wolf or maybe the missing link between ape and man, or that her eyes glowed in the dark. Yet in reality, she was an abandoned little girl. She was a little girl, a child just surviving, trying to make it on her own in a swamp. She was hungry and cold, but we did not help her. We chose not to help her. Not one of our churches, not one in our community groups offered her food or clothes. Instead, we labeled her. And we rejected her because we thought she was different. But ladies and gentlemen, did we exclude Miss Clark because she was different? Or was she different because we excluded her. I won't ruin the story for those who I hope will read the book, 
But I will tell you that this speech ultimately yields a shift and a bunch of people. And Kaya Clark goes on to become a renowned and celebrated naturalist, a famous artist, the pride of Barclay Cove. And even though Kaya will carry with her the scars of what she's been through the rest of her life, like I'm going to carry with me and you're going to carry with you the scars of your own particular histories, because of what ultimately happens, because of the acceptance that eventually starts to grow around, she finds more love and hope and redemption than she had dared to dream was possible. What I wonder today is how many more Dan Myers or Kaya Clarks or yous are out there, or maybe even right here today. I wonder how many sinners, how many strangers, how many immigrants, how many forgotten people need somebody to search for them and find them and offer them a place in God's family. And I wonder what kind of blessing they would actually prove to be to this community and the communities out there if someone reached out to them and embraced them. What if all of us decided that today was the day when we were going to each, in our own way, make a shift from securing self to seeking others good in a much deeper way. And I wanna give you a little quiz just to help determine whether you, maybe you've already made the shift. It may be that you don't need this message at all. This is for the person sitting next to you. They ought to, in fact, rib them, tell them to pay attention, because they need this message. Here's the little quiz. When you walk into the church building today, or when you walk into your school or your workplace or the shopping mall on a typical day, is your main thought, hey, I wonder what I'll get here. I wonder what I'll get here. Or is sort of the, the more leading thought for you, I wonder, I wonder what I can give here. I, I, I wonder who, who, who I can welcome. I wonder who I can guide. I wonder who I might be able to help or to encourage here. What if, if you walked in and your first thought when you got here was not, I need to check in with my friends, or you thought, maybe I'll check in for five or 10 minutes with my friends, but then I'm gonna go see who doesn't yet have a friend. Or, 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 or let me ask, if you leave this building on the weekend, uh, are you typically thinking, well, I'm glad I got my fill-up and my tune-up for the week. This is going to really help me. Or are you thinking instead, wow, I think maybe I can use what I heard there, what I learned there, to better serve others out there. Whose life am I going to be able to, to help move towards the good? Who, who's going to be in my church family next week or next year because... I found them, and I built a relationship with them. Or when God blesses you with a promotion, or when God blesses you with a financial windfall, 
Or when God blesses you with greater prominence in some sphere of your life, do you think to yourself, wow, this is really great for me and for my family? Or do you think just as quickly, wow, thank you, Lord, man, now I can help or touch in your name even more people for the good. Where in that continuum do you find yourself? How far have you made the shift? If you want to groove the shift I'm talking about more fully, let me just give you a direct challenge and an invitation. Identify somebody in your path ahead who seems a little bit like one of those lost sheep or that lost coin or one of those lost kids that we meet in Christ's parables. Maybe it's somebody that you're going to meet here today. Somebody who's just lost because they don't know where the bathroom is. Maybe it's somebody with an even larger kind of need. A lot of us are lost in one way or another. And almost all of us at some point are lost in some dimension of our life at any given time. Maybe it's a person of a very different race. Maybe it's a person of a different generation. Maybe it's a person of a different political persuasion. It could be a a stranger. It could be somebody that you see all the time, a server or a checkout person. Or maybe a person who speaks with a different accent or wears different kinds of clothes. The point is find somebody who you might previously or others might see as like a marsh person. A sinner a stranger, somebody different, and build a redemptive relationship with them. Welcome and eat with them. Or if you can't arrange a meal yet, then then, then just get to know their story. Listen to them. Learn from them. Stop for them, pray for them, express practical compassion toward them because the Bible makes it really clear this is what Jesus did. Every day. He's going along with the disciples, he sees the person by the road, he sees the person in the tree, he sees the woman at the well. Read the Gospels with fresh eyes. This is what he's all about. Moving out, reaching out, embracing, drawing in, building the family. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And if Christians are not known as being people who do this, are we Christians? Are we disciples? Or or are we still stuck in dabbling over here. I believe that having seen afresh today how Jesus moves beyond securing self to seeking others is gonna help you and me make that shift. Let's pray together. Lord God, like those folks in Barclay Cove, one day we're going to um, wake up. (laughs) We're gonna realize what a shame it was that we spent so much time thinking about ourselves, so little time, relatively, 
reaching out in love to the people around us, people who are just hungering for security and belonging and love just as we do. By the light of your shining glory, God, there's going to come a day when we'll, we'll see fully and realize completely how many people could have been our beloved family members had we dared to open our hearts, had we dared to extend our hands to them. Knowing that, help us to make that shift now. In the name of Jesus the good shepherd, we pray. Amen.